There's some notes in your bulletin if you picked one of those up on the way in. You can follow along. This is week three in our Christmas sermon series, and we've borrowed from a 150-year-old hymn for the title of this series, the song that we just sang. It was written many, many years ago by a guy named William Chatterton Dix. We know the hymn as What Child Is This? I told you last week that originally he wrote it not as a hymn but as a poem, and the title that he originally gave to these words was The Manger Throne. The Manger Throne. Asking this question over and over again, what child is this? Who is this child that was born? And in his idea, in his mind, and as he wrote these words to this poem, the driving idea he wanted to get to is that this baby born in Bethlehem was more than just a normal, regular baby, but he deserved not to lay in a manger, but to sit on a throne. He was a king. And that's going to play heavy in the idea that we talk about this morning. The big idea of our, our study, our time together, is the idea that Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of David. And we read that in Matthew chapter 1. We read it right out of the gate. We read it as this genealogy builds first through Abraham's line and then through David's line. And just like we've done the last couple of weeks, we're going to read all of Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to jump in and talk about what does it mean that Jesus is the son of David. So you follow along, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this month as we pause in our weekly routine to gather for worship, to gather around your word, to gather around the Christmas story. Father, our prayer is that you would help us to see and to understand and to believe the truth about this child that was born 2,000 years ago. Father, that we would understand what it means to call Jesus the Christ that we would understand what it means to call him the son of Abraham. And Father, this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what does it mean to call Jesus the son of David. Father, we pray that your word, which is living and active, would be powerful in our lives today, right now. And we pray that your spirit, which gives life, your spirit, which inspired these words, would open our hearts to understand them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. February 16th, 1959 was the day that Fidel Castro was sworn in as the prime minister of Cuba. Uh, Over a dozen years later, he was sworn in as the president of Cuba, changed his title, but really not a whole lot changed. For an awful lot of years, Fidel Castro was a one-man show that ran Cuba, whether he was called prime minister or president or any other title. It was a long, a long reign. In 2006, because of health reasons, he started the process of stepping down and handing over some authority and some power and some of his presidential responsibilities to his younger brother, Raul Castro. You may have heard that he passed away this past November, the 25th. He was 90 years old. And And what I think of as a humorous piece of irony, you also may have heard that his funeral hearse broke down in the streets of Havana in the middle of the funeral. So you look at his life and one takeaway is you say, well, presidents and kings and rulers and dictators and prime ministers, they all die. And to that list, we would add Russian military jeeps also die at some point in time. They give up the ghost and his died and they had to push it through the streets. These are some of the men who were president during his reign. Uh, it's a remarkable thing to think about a guy who, who ruled and reigned in a country when we've had so many presidents come and go. And if anything else this morning you take away, you look at all those small pictures on the right and you say, if you're not happy with the current president, just wait a while because we're going to have another one. Somebody else is coming. If you like the guy we have, don't get too comfortable because somebody else is coming. There's another one coming. All of these men, all of these leaders, all of these rulers, dictators, Presidents, congressmen, prime ministers, generals, they all have one thing in common. They all die. 
And it's an amazing thing to open this book, to read through what we call the Old Testament, to read through what we know as the New Testament, and to read about a ruler, a king, who according to the Scriptures, whose reign will never come to an end. Never. There will not be a next. There will not be another. There will not be an end to his reign and his power and his authority and his dynasty. He's the king to rule all kings. And that's really sort of what we're driving at when we talk about Jesus being the son of David. That's what Matthew's trying to get across to us when he writes this gospel and he starts off right out of the gate saying, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, he's the son of David. This morning I want you to understand what does Matthew mean when he calls Jesus the son of David? And we're just going to begin with that simple question. What does it mean to call Jesus the son of David? Just like we've done the last couple of weeks, you've got to go backwards. You've got to go backwards into the Old Testament if you want to understand what Matthew's trying to tell us. And right out of the gate, you need to get this. In the Old Testament, God chose a young shepherd from Jesse's family to be the king of Israel. And like the last couple of weeks, we don't have time to flip around to all of these different verses. I'm going to put some on the screen later, but I've put them in your notes so you can go back and read. God chose a young shepherd from Jesse's family to be the king of Israel. Now, you've got to be upfront and honest about this. If you were looking to pick a king, this was a pretty unlikely place to look. For one thing, Israel already had a king. His name was Saul. He looked like a king. He had the temperament and the attitude of a king, and he was firmly in control of Israel. So Israel, at the moment that God chose David, didn't exactly need a king. What they needed was a different kind of king. And God went looking in the most unlikely of places to Jesse's family, a family that wasn't particularly rich, wasn't particularly famous for anything, wasn't particularly powerful in Israel, weren't sort of a a mover and shaker type family, just your typical rural shepherd family. And God sent his servant to Jesse's family. And he didn't take Jesse's oldest son or the next oldest or the next oldest, but he sent his servant out to the fields to find the runt of the litter, David. And he called David and God said, you're the one through Samuel. You're the one that's going to be the shepherd of my people, the king of my people. And not only did God take this unlikely shepherd boy from a no-name family and put him on the throne of Israel, but he made him some amazing promises. Here's how the promises came about. David had been enthroned as the king, recognized as the king. Saul was long gone in a distant memory. And David looked around one day in Jerusalem, and things were pretty good for David at this point. He didn't have a whole lot of battles still burning on the, on the borders of the country, he didn't have a lot of people attacking. And he was pretty well established in Jerusalem. He had a nice home. And he looked up one day and he realized that the ark of God, the throne of God, that Moses made so many years earlier to sit in the most holy place. It was still living in a tent while David lived in a nice house. And David felt a little bit uneasy about it. And so David had this idea. He started talking to some of his closest advisors. He said, what I want to do is move the ark out of this tent into something appropriate. 
You think about the age of the tabernacle at this point in history. Moses had made it hundreds of years earlier, and it was just a tent made from common materials. It probably didn't look fantastic, and David said, we've got to get the ark, the throne of God, out of the tent and into a temple. And David says to his closest advisors, I want to build God a house. I want to build him a temple that is fitting for him. And almost as soon as the words came out of his mouth, almost as soon as the idea came into his head, God appeared to David in a dream. And here's what God told David. This is my paraphrase. I don't need a house. I didn't ask for a house. I don't need you, David, to do anything for me. In fact, David, not only do I not need you to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And he began to make these promises to David. This is on your outline. God promised David a great name. He promised him rest for Israel. He promised him a a quote-unquote house or a dynasty. All of these things, every bit as unlikely as the promises that God made to Abraham. You remember we talked about Abraham last week. God takes a homeless, aged, childless man and says, I'm going to give you kids and I'm going to give you land, and I'm going to use you to bless the entire world. And it seems impossible. No more impossible than when God comes to a young shepherd boy from Jesse's family who he's put on the throne of Israel and says to him, I'm going to make your name great, David. People will know it. You're going to have a reputation. You don't have one now. You're just a shepherd, a nobody, the lowest in your family. But I'm going to give you a great name. He says, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. You're one of the smallest nations around. There's amazingly powerful empires all around you, and I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. And I'm going to give you a dynasty. I'm going to build you this house that has no end. All of these things, God says, David, I'm going to do these things for you. And when you start to read about God putting the pieces into place to fulfill these promises, initially it's almost like David can't mess it up because he tries really hard. Did you read the note when we read through Matthew's genealogy? It's in the middle of verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king, and David, it's almost like Matthew's clearing his throat, (laughs) the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David does some terrible things in the Old Testament. Things unbecoming of a man after God's own heart. And in spite of who David is and in spite of what David does, God continues to bless him. And he gives him this son in spite of his sin named Solomon. And he puts Solomon on the throne. And things are so great in Solomon's days that people have almost forgotten about David because things are amazingly great under Solomon. The kingdom has grown. Nations are coming from from all corners of the earth just to see Solomon, just to bask in his glory. And you look at this and you say, God's actually done it. He's made David's line famous all around the world. He's given them peace from their enemies. He's done everything that he said he was going to do. Solomon is this promised son that God said he would give to David who would rule. And then Solomon, it's like he's up on the high dive and he just nosedives. And he goes from a man fearing God, serving God, to a man who chases idols. 
and women. And when he dies, his kingdom, David's kingdom, gets split in two. Now this great kingdom that God's promised has now been cut in half. And all these leaders, one after another, in both of these kingdoms, they fall short of the the sort of kingship that God wants from his people. They begin to chase idols just like Solomon did at the end of his reign. And eventually, Abraham's family gets kicked out of the promised land. Abraham's family. God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. He gave it to him. He kicks him out. God says to David, I'm going to give you peace from all your enemies. And there is no peace Because first Assyria comes and then Babylon comes and they attack and they take David's family, this line of kings, and they take them off the throne and they just sort of set them up, prop them up as puppet kings. This is on your notes. It's the same thing that we talked about last week with Abraham. The exile of the people from the promised land, it seemed like the end of God's promises to David. All of these things, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you peace from your enemies. I'm going to give you this line of kings, this house that will never end. And then the people go into exile, out of the land, forcibly, violently taken. And this line of kings, this line of great kings from the tribe of Judah just sort of get propped up by bigger, badder, tougher, stronger nations as puppets. And you look at it and you say, that's it. It's over. I mean, God said he was going to do some great things for this guy, but they blew it, and it all came crashing down. But even in the Old Testament, if you read closely, if you look closely, you find some hints that maybe, just maybe, even though the people are in exile, even though God has disciplined his people, even though he's taken David's line off the true throne, maybe, just maybe, he's not done with them. Isaiah puts it like this in Isaiah chapter 9, looking to the future, and he says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You underline this next phrase. He says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You have these hints. Yes, they've gone into exile. Yes, it looks like the promises are over. But maybe God's not done with these people yet. And then you turn from Malachi to Matthew. From the Old Testament to the New. And the first thing you read, Matthew 1, 1, the first verse of the New Testament is what? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And this is Matthew getting out his megaphone, trying to get your attention, trying to grab you by the shirt collars and shake some sense into you and to say, I'm not writing a new story, I'm writing a new chapter and an old story. This story that that involved Abraham and then involved David that you thought was over and done with in history and forgotten about, it's not over. It's just getting started. The son of David has finally come. You ought to keep reading through the Gospel of Matthew. You know, we studied the Gospel of Luke a few weeks back, and as we went through the Gospel of Luke, we talked about unique things in Luke. Can I tell you one of the unique things in the Gospel of Matthew? More than any of the other Gospel writers... Guess what Matthew calls Jesus? 
the son of David, over and over and over and over and over again. He's the son of David. He's the son of David. He starts his gospel with that idea. Jesus, the Christ, the son of David. And he says it over and over and over again. And he's trying to get you and I to connect the dots and to say, this baby, this Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas is not just sort of something new that God has pulled out of thin air, but it's something that God has been promising his people for centuries. He's the son of David. It's worth celebrating. It's big news, and I want to end by giving you three reasons you should celebrate Jesus as the son of David. Number one, just like we said last week when we talked about Abraham, the birth of Jesus reminds us that God always keeps his promises. Always. And I gave you this exact same idea last week when we talked about Jesus being the son of Abraham. It's exactly still true when we say Jesus is the son of David. I want to elaborate on it just a little bit. God made all these promises to Abraham. Amazing promises. Amazing promises to David. Promises like, I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to multiply you as a people. Promises like, I'm going to give you land, a place to live. And I'm going to give you peace in that land where your enemies will no longer attack you. And I'm going to do great things for you, David. I'm going to put people on your throne who will reign forever. It won't be like Castro. It won't be like U.S. presidents, four-year terms. It won't be 50-year-long dictatorships. It's going to be an unending reign. Abraham, I'm going to do these things for you. David, I'm going to do these things for you. And Matthew, when he starts his gospel off saying, this is the son of David, he wants you to connect the dots and see, this is how God's going to keep all his promises. All those promises he made to David, he's about to fulfill in Jesus. And we get to the book of Revelation. The reference is in your notes. You can look it up later. When you get to the book of Revelation, you read something fascinating. John writes down in the book of Revelation that when Jesus comes back to this earth, he will reign on guess whose throne? David's throne. As a king on this earth, in his land, and all of God's people will have peace from their enemies. Sometimes you look at Bible prophecies. We talked about this in my Sunday school class, and you have to think about them like a distant mountain range. When you see it on the horizon, all those mountains look really close. And when you get up upon those mountains, you realize there's great valleys and chasms and gaps in between them. And this is one of them. Where Isaiah says, this child will sit on David's throne forever. And the Jews were looking around for a Messiah and they said, we're ready to have a king. Someone who's going to sit on the throne. And they didn't realize that that mountain is a little bit out in the future, a little bit out in the distance. And John says, God's going to keep his promise. The promises he made to Abraham, the promises he made to David, promises about land and about multiplying the people and about safety and security from your enemies and a king who will sit on the throne and be a blessing to the entire world. All of those promises he made, he has not forgotten them. He intends to keep them through Jesus. Why do you celebrate Jesus as the son of David? Here's the second reason and maybe the most important reason. Jesus, the son of David, was disciplined for our iniquity. He is the son of David who was disciplined for our iniquity. I've talked to you about the promises that God made to David. I want to show you just a piece of that promise. We'll put it up on the screen. 
It's from 2 Samuel 7. This is God speaking to David. And he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, David. Somebody's coming after you. He will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name. David's not going to do it, but your son is going to do it. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. A lot of biblical prophecy has sort of a dual application. And you read these verses and you say, well, it sounds like he's talking about Solomon. Solomon built the temple. He built the house for God's name. He came from David's body. He was his offspring, his descendant. His throne was established and his kingdom was great. He was disciplined when he committed iniquity. It sounds like we're talking about Solomon. There's this little pesky phrase right in the middle of that passage that says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Forever. Sort of want to channel my inner Sandlot movie and get the idea of forever across to you, right? Forever. That means forever. It doesn't mean coming to an end someday. It means forever. And you look at it and you say, well, you know, funny thing, Solomon did some of that, but then his throne was split into two, and he had two kingdoms, and then first the northern kingdom went into exile, and then the southern kingdom went into exile, and ever since then, let's be honest, when there has been a king, they've just been a puppet king. There hasn't been any real king, but God made a promise, and he says, I'm going to establish his throne forever. And you look at that phrase and you realize he's got to be talking about some other king to come, the son of David, who we know of as Jesus. So you say, okay, we're talking about Jesus. But then there's a little pesky phrase at the end if we're talking about Jesus. Do you see it? When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him. You say, well, how does that apply to Jesus? Because the Bible says that he did not commit iniquity. He wasn't a sinner. He had nothing to repent of or to be disciplined for. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that Jesus, the son of David, became sin for us when he died on the cross. He was disciplined for our sins. And Paul tells the church in Galatia in Galatians 3.13 that Jesus, the son of David, became a curse for you when he died on the cross. He was cursed because he was carrying your iniquity. This is how Isaiah says it in the Old Testament. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, you could also say, was the discipline, the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we're healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, here's this word again, the iniquity of us all. And what you see in Jesus is an amazing thing. It's the king who came to sit on David's throne forever, but it's also the suffering servant who came to carry our iniquities. 
And no one twisted his arm into it. Nobody sort of backed him into a corner and forced his hand. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, look at this verse. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The father loves me for this reason. I lay my life down that I can take it back up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I want to do this for my people. Yes, I'm the king who's going to sit on David's throne forever, but I'm also the shepherd. You think about David, the shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And I've come to lay down my life for yours. I've come to become sin for you. I've come to bear your iniquities. I've come to take the chastisement that should have fallen to you. I've come to take the discipline that should have fallen on you so that you could live and that you could know life. When we celebrate Christmas, we don't just celebrate a baby born who came to teach us and do miracles and make life easy for us. We celebrate a Savior who came to die for us. A baby born with the destiny of a death sentence to take our iniquity, to become our sin, and to be cursed for us. He is the son of David, disciplined for our sins. And the last idea is this. Why celebrate Jesus as the son of David? He is the king who will one day rule over all kings. We've already read Isaiah 9. He's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Of the end of his government and his reign and of peace, there will be no end, Isaiah says. You can look at Philippians 2. It says that a day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's the king who will rule over all kings. And Revelation spells it out crystal clear in chapter 19. That when he returns, it won't be in humility as a baby born in obscurity in the middle of the night laying in a manger but it will be as a king on his war horse and on his thigh he has a name written John says he's the king of kings and the lord of lords what child is this that we celebrate at Christmas William Dix understood the answer and 150 years ago he wrote a poem And he titled it The Manger Throne. Because he understood that this baby that was laid in a manger in Bethlehem was destined to be a king. He's the son of David. He's the king of all kings. And my prayer for you this Christmas season as you celebrate Jesus and as you think about his birth and as you talk to your kids and as you pray and you think about your relationship with this baby that was born 2,000 years ago, that you don't just see him as a baby, that it's not just a sort of sentimental, warm, fuzzy feeling you get, that you understand that he's the Christ, the Messiah. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of David. Let me pray for you. Father, our hope centers in Jesus and who he is and on why he was born as a baby in Bethlehem so many years ago. Father, when we think about this story, it's almost too good to be true. It's an amazing tale that goes back thousands of years 
about promises that you made to your people and about promises that you've kept in Jesus and about promises that someday you will keep in Jesus. Father, I pray for the folks in this room as we think about the Christmas season. And I pray that we would not be focused on parties, on gifts, on lights, on vacation. But I pray that our focus would be centered on Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Father, and I pray that we would celebrate who he is and what he came to accomplish on our behalf. Father, you are a great God, and this story reminds us of the great things that you've done for your people. Be honored as we lift our voices to worship you and to sing to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.